Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. I am your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest. Introduce yourself. Oh, that's me. Hi, I'm Ethan Bartlett. <laughs> I'm the guest. Uh, I, I feel like we should we should be giving our full names with patronymics with our patronymics. and everything. Yes. Um, <laughs> I don't know the proper Russian way to do that, it, but it would be like Ethan Joel... I, I would get the order wrong. Ethan Joel Mobley Bartlett, son of Neil... Grandson of John uh, Wood? I don't know. I don't know how far back you're supposed to go. I think just one. Yeah, right? I think it so is I'd just be one. well, like I'd be well. See, mine's funny because I'd be Michael Jean Genovich Lilienthal. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> there we go. Uh, yes, because that's the the book we're discussing. We'll get there though. Um, before we do that, because it's our our gargantuan, um, not okay. gargantua. That's okay. Um, that's a confusing um, adjective for you to use. And I know I think you it is. It's very purpose. confusing. <laughs> I would never. Um, <laughs> so this, I will say, this one probably the most gargantuan. Ironically, the most gargantuan um, mondo book we have done yet. Besides the one that was literally gargantuan. Well, right. That's why it's ironic. I think. I still don't know what irony is. <laughs> I was supposed to know as a result of, like, studying it's, English twice, but I still don't. It, is, it, isn't it 10 million spoons when all you need is a knife? Isn't that ironic? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, or it's rain on your wedding day. That's ironic, right? No. I'm pretty sure not. <laughs> like, I, I think... No. I could accurately, if you gave me like 10,000 examples, I think I could fairly accurately <laughs> tell you which ones are ironic and which ones aren't. But like, I still couldn't define what irony is. <laughs> it's it's like that one senator, I, 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 can't, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Yeah, that was, that was a Supreme Court justice talking about pornography. Oh, that's it, that's it. That's right. And this so is irony podcast. is Ethan's pornography. This is a family podcast, so you're not allowed to say that. <laughs> okay. Uh, instead, on this family podcast, uh, let's drink. Let's um, talk about booze. Ethan, let's talk about booze. Uh, we are going to be drinking, let me see if I can say all this right, Craig Isle Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, age 12 years. Um, I don't know, Ethan, were you able to get the same? Absolutely. Nice, nice. I'm excited. Now, as we as we pull this bottle out, right, can you can you tell looking at the the case why I chose this this scotch? Uh, from looking at the bottle itself, For, or from the the case on the outside, the uh, the case that holds the bottle. I mean, it's pretty. It is pretty. It that's, is pretty. It's a nice uh, deep black you. with like shiny blue. Um, I, so I, I, I read ahead looking at the, uh, aroma, taste, and finish stuff. Oh, I was supposed to look uh, at that. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Um, okay. and the, you'll see repeated terms like peat, peat, smoke. Oh my gosh. I'm so, I'm now so excited about this. I mean, I'm always excited to drink a scotch, but dang. I mean, we don't typically talk about the taste beforehand, but I, I had to point this out that this is this is what excited me about this. Sure, <laughs> and excited me to to drink it alongside you. So, uh, 
Uh, as we uh, pour this, Ethan, can you get your, your wife in here to read the rules on this this here podcast thing? I mean, I get She's pretty tight. Okay, fine. Karen, can you read the rules? Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Build some of my book. Oh no! Wow, that's either <laughs> it's just bad just fortune or good fortune. I honestly can't decide which. I'm gonna say that it's sanctifying it. How about that? Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> All right, Slancha. I set something down for my wife over there when she gets back from shopping. Shopping. So, I mean, seems like a good reward for shopping. Right, come back in. Here you go. Um, Wait, what are you doing? So, here? Ethan, uh, that's for me to know and you to mind your own business. Um, <laughs> this is a family podcast, Michael. You can't do that. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> we are discussing the very large book that both of us read, Ethan. Yes. Uh, the book that known as killed. War and Peace. <laughs> By Leo it, Tolstoy, I yes. I think it almost killed both of us. I, I think you're right. I think it did almost kill both of us. Um, now, this is the second time you've read this book, right? Correct. I remember that, right? Yeah, there's, it's also the second time I've read this book, although you had a shorter time in between readings than I did. The last time I read this book would have been... Oh, I, I had figured this out, I think, in 2009. That's what I was going to guess. So and I was there, um, which I hate. Yeah, to just admit. almost fifteen years ago. Yeah, that's insane to think about. Yeah, um, <laughs> I fifteen years between between readings. Um, I can between... remember hauling this massive hard hardcover book in my backpack while I was working at Valley Fair, and <laughs> you know while I was letting the ride run uh, during the time when I couldn't do anything if anybody was in danger. Anyway, <laughs> um, I'd just read a couple pages. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but yes that uh that was that was my first first reading of it um and now i definitely got a lot more 
out of it. I, um, you must have been... You must have either started in spring semester or still been reading it in fall semester. Because I remember you mm. reading it during school as well. Yes, I started it in the, the spring semester. Okay. Um, and then read it through into the summer. Through into the summer. So, yeah... Um, Last time I read it, it probably took me close to six months to okay. read it. This time around, it was maybe half the time. Because <laughs> <Sure. laughs> <laughs> um, it's huge! Um, it is. And I mean, we read like we read huge books once a year on this podcast, but like it's it's huge compared to those. Even like yes, not as huge, I guess. If you're doing a if you're sort of defining your comparison fairly strictly, but it's still bigger yes it is it is bigger um than than those books uh and man like some of it is just like the context for for the book just understanding all of the history that's going on and um all the characters and the fact that it's a trilingual book um, right <laughs> i want to talk about that uh at some point very soon um yes we will we will definitely do that um i will i will i want to give my comparison to your like readings of this book uh yes please read this book last year uh so Mm -hmm. i i think i read it just about a year the two readings i did were just about a year apart or so um i did read two different translations which was an interesting experience uh uh and I don't, there was some, when I read it last year, it was like a little bit after there was sort of an online, like Reddit based, but, you know, expanding beyond Reddit, like project where like a lot of people were reading it as sort of a, a book club, like an online broad based book hmm. club kind of thing um that I think started in 2020 as like a COVID thing. Like, okay, we're all stuck in our houses. Oh, okay. Like, finally read war and peace um (laughs) and in the context of that i remember reading that there was some famous author and i can't remember who it was it may even have been hemingway but i'm not sure Mm. who like read this book once a year and oh my gosh right um and like i can see it like i can see why you would want to do that i could see doing that and also i don't think i could do it like that's amazing I don't think i will read this book next year and if i do because i do have a third translation i want to read oh if I, snap if i did read this book next year i think that would be it for like a few years after that i'm not sure because it's like it is such a there's an element of this book that is like as soon as you finish it you do want to go back to the beginning and reread it um or at least i do y- that no, I I know exactly what you mean, and yes, like even though, like even though it's massive, and like you just see the finish line, like running a marathon, and it's just like I can finally be done. Right. Uh, you hit that finish line, it's like let's go, let's right. do it again, please. Um, I need it again. <laughs> and I will say, I think last year, I think I read this book over the course of about a month. It took me about four weeks to read it. Um, okay. This year, my reading actually took, I would say, six to eight weeks. And I think okay. I was kind of, I had a couple weeks where I was like pretty badly sick in there, which I'm going to say messed my numbers up a little bit. But I think even sure. like accounting for that, I think I still would would have and did take 
longer this year than I did last year. And I don't know what that means, if anything. It may just be that I was playing more video games this year, you know, during reading it. (laughs) Or it may be, you know, that like, when you first read a book, obviously you have that drive of like needing to know what happens next. And then the one thing you don't have in rereading it is like, you know, you know, you know who lives and who dies and so on and so forth. Right. Um, Right. But that said, like, I will say I did even reading it twice in so short a period and at a point in my life where I feel like I'm like pretty good at reading books and retaining things like better than I was even 10 years ago and certainly better than I was 15 to 20 years ago, like when I was in college (laughs) or high school. Um, I will say like this second read this year, like definitely I caught things just in the plot, just in the surface that I had somehow missed last year. Like, like just, um, stuff about how characters turned out or, or where they went or different things like that, that, um, uh, I, I somehow just missed last. Maybe I was rushing to finish last year. Oh, and just sure. Didn't register it well enough or something, but like there were definitely even things like that. Um, and then the last remark I have just sort of on a general, uh, uh, talking about myself having read this book twice again in two different translations. Um, I definitely cried both times I read it. <laughs> and I definitely cried at different parts both times that I read Yes! Oh, yes! Oh my gosh. And that's fascinating okay. to me. And I will say, one supplemental thing I'll say... Um, yes, please. Is there are several film versions of War and Peace. Um Sure. The three I want to mention, and I've only watched one of them, there's a version, an American version, I think from the late 1950s, I want to say, or early 1960s, starring Audrey Hepburn as Natasha, wrong, um, that, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, it was a, I want to say it was a two and a half or three hour version, and and it was like, essentially released out of Hollywood, there's more to it than that, but um sure and that's kind of considered a classic i have not watched that even though i have strong opinions about casting already um like i can i can see it maybe working but like it it's gonna take more effort than i think anybody was willing to put into it well Um, i i just object to audrey hepburn being like audrey hepburn is wonderful and she was a great actress sure but not as natasha no Um, with a certain stretch, I can see it, but no, it's, it's a very just, different, yeah, very different just, Natasha it's, than it's a mm. very Americanized version. Um, yeah, yeah. And again, one day we'll watch this and maybe see how wrong we are. But whatever. Um, sure. The second version that I want to mention very briefly: there was a BBC miniseries that came out a few years ago with Li- oh yeah 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 with Lily James as Natasha, and I haven't seen that one either. But like, I think probably excellent mm. casting as natasha yeah mm. Mm. um again mm-hmm. haven't seen it don't uh, venture too many opinions on it uh the one i did watch in like in the lead up to these episodes was the russian version from that was released in four films so it's it's i want to say seven hours or nine hours long total um but it was released in four parts from 
like the early 60s to the like mid late 60s like 63 to 68 or something like that and as i understand mm. and that's the one i have watched obviously with subtitles whatever um and uh, as i understand this russian version because of course the 50s and the 60s were in the midst of the cold war and the cold war had a cultural front between russia and america or ussr mm-hmm. and the US, usa um so the fact that Hollywood, American Hollywood had released a version of War and Peace, apparently just pissed the Russians off. Um, <laughs> and they decided it was a great shame that, like, Hollywood, and, and it was a big global hit, the Hollywood version. So they decided they needed to make one. Um, and as I understand, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit from things I've read, but, like, as I understand, the, the Soviet government gave the filmmakers of the Russian one essentially an infinite budget. Um, yes and they like uh, like the russian army was brought in or the u.s the the soviet oh. army was brought in to play extras so like there are battle scenes in this one that have literally thousands of people like in a shot in a frame um it's incredible like it's genuinely amazing and worth watching all seven hours of um i'm sure so yeah i guess, i guess again like I'll maybe have things to say about it later and, and bring that in. But um, also I will say, and not to give away too much already <laughs> who my favorite character is, but the Natasha in that one is like <laughs> stunning. She's incredible. Like, I don't know anything else Good. about the actress who played her or, or her previous or future career or anything, but like, like in the, the series of movies, she's amazing. That's um, amazing. So yeah, that's what that's what I know about different versions of this this work. Okay, yeah, I haven't seen any any of those um, any any version of War and Peace. Um, I've only read it. the The closest I've come to seeing a version of War and Peace is I just recently, for the first time ever, saw Gone with the Wind, and that's like <laughs> the American antebellum War and Peace. It's yeah, like. <laughs> Some a certain part of me wants to like deeply object to the comparison, but also I can very much see the comparison in terms like of... I mean we we can talk about some of that, yeah, as it comes, but like yeah, I mean, there are thematic similarities and stuff There's I will admit similarities. Like, i'm 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 being a butt by making that comparison <laughs> totally I but... mean, to be fair, there's even like cultural similarities in the yes. in the idea of like uh very long work of literature turned into a very long film centered around a pivotal conflict in yep. the um uh what's like the zeitgeist or the the popular imagination of a nation um right frankly if i this is a weird sort of compare or sort of analogy but like if frankly, i frankly my dear frankly my dear if I had, <laughs> you know, children of sort of like a, you know, double digits age, like like children who could comprehend these things, I would be much more comfortable showing them the Soviet War and Peace than showing them um, <laughs> Gone with the Wind, the movie that, where the KKK are literally some of the protagonists. Um, <laughs> like, I would probably show them both yeah. in an educational context and, and you know, yeah, that's sure. a whole discussion. Anyway... 
But like That's, I do, yep. much as I, I do, like I will hold <laughs> simultaneously that you are being a butt and that you have made a fairly valid comparison. That's all I wanted. That's all I ever wanted from you, Ethan. That's that's great. Um, I I do want to ask. So you mentioned you read two different translations of this. What translations did you read um, first and second? I believe the first, last year and then this year. So the first translation I read, um, I'm just like really quickly googling this to see yeah okay so the first translation i read was by a woman named constance garnett um i don't okay. know a whole lot about her or her translation specifically other than that after like i think i just bought it because i was like i need war and peace i'm gonna read this sometime and then i found it in a used sure. bookstore for a reasonable price after the fact of having read it i found that a lot of people on the internet Consider her translation a very good beginner translation, like a very good first mm. um, translation to read. So I'm like relatively yep. pleased with that, pleased enough with that. Um, sure. The translation I read this time was a, sort of a hybrid translation published by Oxford University Press. Uh, again deeply unprepared i'm trying to look at uh, uh mm. copyright pages and stuff looks like in 2010 originally um mm. and what it is is basically the 2010 version is a revised version by a woman named amy mandel mandelker of a translation um, done in the 1920s by a couple named Louise and Aylmer Maud. Um, okay. Now, the Maud translation that this couple did was throughout the 20th century long considered by a lot of people the translation of War and Peace into English. Um, like, it was right. just considered the greatest, like, balance between accuracy and, like, artistic rendering into English. Also... The mods mm -hmm. knew Tolstoy personally, so like they, you know, they have that kind of that's nice weight of authority. Yeah, um, and essentially, I think what Amy Mandelker, Mandelker did uh, in you know the early twenty first century was to sort of work from the the mod translation, but then retranslate things to sort of update the language to reflect mm -hmm. more accurately into like twenty first century English what Tolstoy was doing in 19th century Russian with the mods as sort of an, uh, um, I was going to say interloper. That's not the connotation I want, but with the mods <laughs> sort of a, a medium or something. Um, yeah. So that she just, I think a lot of what she did was kind of like take things where, you know, I think an example I saw online was like in the mod translation, you have someone yelling something and then the, the uh dialogue tag is blah 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 he ejaculated which sounded fine mm -hmm. in the 1920s and has an unintended like non-family friendly connotation in the 21st century stuff like that and i don't know you know sure. i don't know otherwise how extensive her translation was um but yeah it's an interesting hybrid translation uh yeah i i enjoyed reading it i you know i'm i'm I don't know Russian at all, so I don't know how 
some of that stuff stacks up versus the original, but yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Inter- like, so um, I, I'm, <clears throat> I read uh, the same translation that I read 15 years ago, um, translated by Richard Bevere and uh, Larissa Volokonsky. Okay. Um, and uh, Richard Bevere especially has won some awards for his Russian translations. Um, he's translated a lot of Dostoevsky and um, uh, Gogol and Chekhov and stuff. Um, but uh, the the introduction to this uh, this translation that's written by Richard Pevere actually um, gives some of his uh, translation philosophy and like sure. compares other translations of War and Peace. So, like, he mentions Maud uh, and Constance Garnett and everything in here. So, like, I was looking at the paragraph where he mentions all of them while you were talking about your translations. And uh, um, part of uh, what he wants uh, to, to... Well, I'll just read uh, one, of, one of his sentences here. Clumsiness and simplesse apart, no English version of War and Peace has succeeded in conveying the power, balance, rhythm, and above all, the repetitiveness of the original. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he says, perhaps it is repetition, which is the most characteristic single feature of Tolsto- Tolstoy's prose style. Um, actually, that's a... that's he He's quoting there um, uh, so, uh, another... Um, uh, critic of Tolstoy uh, from the 60s um, by the name of R.H. Christian, but he's agreeing with all of this. And then um, he talks about how all these other um, translators take sections where Tolstoy is particularly repetitive and they'll translate different words into English mm. or they'll skip some of the words and eliminate some of them and stuff and, um, to make it not sound as repetitive. And he's like, but I want to maintain some of Tolstoy's style, which again, I don't know Russian. This is the claims that he's making about his and uh, Larissa Volokonsky's translation. Um, It seems good, you know, in the English, it seems like it's, he's accomplished some of that repetitiveness and and such here and there. Um, But, you know, I I mean, it's easy enough to follow. I don't, I don't know how it actually stacks up, but it's there. Um, Yeah. But yeah, Uh, so that's interesting. No, when I when I referenced earlier a third translation that I have been wanting to dive into, um, the Pavir and, and Volokonsky translation is literally that one. Like, I I sure. recently acquired that at a used book sale because it was the one that I was nice. looking for yet. So if and when I do yeah. read it a third time, that will probably be the one. Very good. Very and good. I've, I've yeah. heard discussing it with people and and looking online which again you know for what it's worth um i have heard that his their translation is sort of the most literal which come you know kind of comes mm-hmm. through in in the the bits that you quoted just now um so like that's right. part of why i wanted to read it because again garnet is like supposed to be sort of holding your hand um the modern, <laughs> The modern Mendelker translation is supposed to be sort of um, working with English as much as with like a direct Russian translation. And then, yeah, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, this one, yours is supposed to be like the most directly Russian of the translations into English. Insofar as that is not like a complete nonsense phrase or, or paradox or whatever. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. No, that's fine. We can <laughs> we can contradict ourselves. We contain multitudes. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah. So it, it, yeah, I mean, with with virtually uh, any uh, massive book that we're going to bring to this, there's going to be a question of translation um, until we start getting into some of the more English classics, which we've done. But um, yeah, so it, I, I just wanted to touch a little bit on on the translations there. But uh, while we're in the in the realm of translating other languages, do you want to talk about the trilingual nature of this book? It's yeah, got both the French and the German uh, um, that uh, Tolstoy would translate in footnotes. The only um, thing I can think of right now that I had off the dome that is going to get into dicey territory for me uh, as sure. far as the show goes. I want to know. What language the beginning of your translation is in? It's French. Okay. <laughs> so, yep. um, that is the language... Eh bien, mon prince, je ne sens plus que des apanges, des états de la famille Bonaparte. Oui, oui, oui. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's the same language the beginning of my modern Mandelker translation is in. The Constance Garnet mm-hmm. translation is in English with a a footnote or something. There was something in the text to denote like, oh, she's speaking French right now. Maybe it even, it wasn't even a footnote. Maybe it was like literally just like, oh, uh, well, Prince, so Genoa and Luca are now just family estates of the Bonapartes, comma, she said in French, something like that. Like, oh, interesting. Yeah. So, and I guess, yeah, I mean, I can see how that would be handholdy. Um, yeah, a little bit there, and I and I guess that like the big con or the big um controversy or debate or just like thing that people note is in English translations of War and Peace is whether the beginning is in English or French. Um, Got it. Sort of like how the the first word of Beowulf is controversial when you translate it into um, oh. modern English. Um, sorry, like the first punctuation of Beowulf is controversial, and that's a whole other <laughs> thing. But um, it's a similar vibe, I guess. Like you're you're a little bit doing a, you know, it's like a little bit of a do you even lift like like a connotation of like yep. Of course, what what is your translate? Do you, does your translation make you read French for one entire paragraph? Hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's no, that's fair. Um, and well, it's 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 a fascinating thing that Tolstoy does with this too. From what I understand, I was trying to find the reference. I thought it was in this book. It might have been in some of the extracurricular stuff I looked at. Um, but when he would translate in a footnote what he had printed in French or in German later on, sometimes his translation was intentionally inaccurate. Oh. To what the French originally said in the in the text, which is interesting. I don't know why he would do that. Um, well, yeah, was it inaccurate? Where was it like inaccurate denotatively and trying to translate more of the connotation into Russian? That could be. I like I say, I don't. I don't actually know. Um, I'm. I'm. Th- this is 
this is verging on hearsay. What I'm doing sure. right now, I don't. It's probably not even verging on it. Um, that's just the one. It's fully reason. in. It's fully enmeshed. Right. But <laughs> that's just the one reason I would I would think of for an author to do that, unless he was playing some sort of like, you know, Gene Wolfe postmodernist style trick on his reader, which right. Could be. I wouldn't put it past Tolstoy. It could be. It could be. I mean, like Tolstoy does a lot of weird stuff, but. Um, <laughs> Like just the 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 fact that he starts it off in French is kind of a thing. Like, uh, because as, as the book gets goes on, it gets into the whole context of this Napoleonic War and everything. Uh, and uh, he even states it in the text that French starts falling out of style in right. Moscow uh, as Napoleon gets closer. Um, whereas before, you know, it's kind of like you you show off by speaking in French. Um, in, in Russia. There's and, like a definite uh, paradox there. Yeah. Um, and I want to like, it, I, if you had more to say about the language stuff, like, I don't know, like, I don't, what I'm about to say might be kind of diverting us from that. Um, but it's, that's fine. Go ahead. It seems like a valid place to bring what I'm about to say up, which is, um, so again, as as we've said, as you've said, as we've said, the beginning of this novel is in French, um, and to quote from my translation, uh, or of, so, again, my translation begins the novel in French. In footnotes, there's an English translation. I'm going to quote from the English translation, um, and we quoted the the opening sentence already i'm going to quote the second sentence but i warn you if you don't tell me that this means war if you still try to defend the infamies and horrors perpetrated by that antichrist i really believe he is the antichrist i will have nothing more to do with you and then it goes on from there Hmm. um but the question i wanted to ask you michael and it is a very history-based question, but you can answer it out of whatever oh knowledge base that you want or want to bring to it. Um, why is Napoleon the Antichrist? <laughs> um, uh, the couple of reasons, right? Like, um, didn't he uh, uh, dethrone one of the popes? Um, no, I mean... Uh, or defrock one of the popes? Didn't he do that? Uh... I guess the short answer to that is depends. Depends. Um, okay. Uh, I know, uh, well, it comes up in the text too with Pierre and his, uh, masonry and stuff that, uh, they calculate the number of the beast to correspond to the name of Napoleon and stuff, but that comes later. Um, I don't know if that's anything that's, uh, informing. That's okay. Um, I'll, I'll say like, now, but that's relate. Like, Culturally and, like, thematically, that's related. But why does she, in the literal opening of this novel, already think that he's the Antichrist? Right, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. What's your answer? <laughs> okay, um, my answer is based on my study of your Western European history and my study of this period. I... Should have boned up on it more in preparation because I knew I was going to ask you this question. 
but I'm going to answer sort of off the dome and probably get some things somewhat wrong. But, so, you have to go back, to answer this question, really, so this this novel starts, I think, in 1805. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I don't remember where I got that date, but it's, I'm I'm like ninety nine. No, it did. That's yep. True. Um, yep. It, well, it's in the second paragraph. Oh, uh, yes. So spoke in July eighteen oh five. The renowned Anna Pavlovna Scherer. Yep, that's where I got <laughs> that. Sure. Um, yeah. So to answer the question of why uh, uh, Anna Pav- Pavlovna Scherer in eighteen oh five thinks that Napoleon is the Antichrist, you have to go back at least to seventeen eighty nine. And the inauguration of the French Revolution. And gotcha. part of the reason that we are not really well equipped to understand why Anna Pavlovna Shearer thinks that Napoleon is the Antichrist is because we have come through American education systems and American education curriculum, which, sort of generally speaking, teach this narrative of the French Revolution that, like, the French Revolution started a few years after the American Revolution and was also bad and not as good at it as the American (laughs) Revolution. Because the American Revolution instilled democracy and everyone was happy forever after. Don't worry about the fact that most of the Founding Fathers owned slaves. Um, Whereas the French Revolution... The end, amen. What's that? The end, amen. Yes, thank you. Um, Whereas the French Revolution devolved into the terror, which, like, I'm not going to get into, but, like, I'm not saying was not a horrific time in history. Like, there were were horrific things that happened. Um, But, ultimately, the the narrative we learn in American schools generally, and I'm talking about public schools, private schools, homeschool curriculum, is um, out of the terror out of sort of the void of leadership, this dictator Napoleon took power or was given power, however you want to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so essentially we're taught this like equivocation where uh, Europe is now ruled by like absolute monarchs who are, who are bad and anti-democratic and also Napoleon who is bad and anti-democratic. But the thing that we lose in that equivocation is the fact that in Europe at the time, including in Russia and in England and and elsewhere, um, Napoleon was seen as an absolute threat to the entire social, political, Mm. and communal order of Europe in the sense that he was considered a popularly elected leader. Um, Mm-hmm. And, and despite the fact that he was a despot and a dictator, like, he was the people's dictator. And that was a very much a threat to the monarchies in Europe who um, essentially obtained or, or, or justified their power, power of royalty, the power of the royal families, by magic blood um, that right. they had obtained by the divine right of kings and justified partly through the fact that the pope um you know put his his sort of uh 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 approval onto these these royal families um now napoleon got himself crowned emperor 
uh, the I thing I think you were you were referencing earlier is Napoleon, um, when the Pope was going to crown him Emperor of France, Napoleon snatched the crown out of the Pope's hand and crowned himself Emperor of France. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Which was a direct contradiction to a thousand years earlier when Charlemagne, um, the the um, the sort of it's complicated, but Napoleon basically saw mm. himself as the heir to Charlemagne. And, and there's a whole lot of, like, cultural mythology and, and stuff that goes into that. And, like, we can absolutely question what claims along these lines are historically valid versus what are historical myth-making and cultural myth-making and so yeah. forth. But um, the incident, as it comes down to us from when Charlemagne was crowned emperor, is that the Pope sort of surprise-attacked Charlemagne and crowned him emperor... And these two incidents <laughs> were viewed as... Uh, yeah, you're emperor. Yeah, which... No, I mean, that's that's how the story gets told. That's not wrong. And the point is, if the Pope crowns you emperor, who has the the greatest power? That's true. The Pope that's does. True. Yes. Yeah, the Pope does. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas if you crown yourself self emperor by snatching the crown it's, out of the it's, Pope's it's hand... The, it's the... It's it's the it's the way Aladdin tricks Jafar. Exactly. Yes. Um which is exactly <laughs> what Napoleon was thinking. Um I knew based it. on having time traveled <laughs> forward to watch uh uh the Disney animated Aladdin 100 almost 200 years in the future. Yes. Um okay. <laughs> so that's a whole thing, but the Napoleon crowning himself emperor. Right, I mean, you've got Return of Jafar, and then you've got the right, 40 how do I, oh, Wait, how do I mute someone else's uh, audio <laughs> Um So, yeah. Like, Napoleon crowning himself Not to emperor mention the animated TV show. Was almost... Um, like a symbol. Like, it, it, it wasn't the thing, it was the symbol of the thing of Napoleon... Right being the power that came out of the French Revolution. And again, the French Revolution was, like, very atheistic, very, like, they tried to rework the calendar uh, so that it had different Mm -hmm. months that were not named after any deities, including Christian deities. Like, there was an atheistic element to that, and Napoleon was seen as the symbol of that. And so... Right. Our American education being so, like, pro sort of the 1950s version of democracy, like, sort of irons out and flattens out all of the ways that, like, Napoleon in Europe in 1805 was an existential threat. Not only to, like, the um, rulers of Europe, but to their whole cosmology, their whole conception of the universe. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And, again, like you know, has been done to many people who threaten um, powers that stake their claim to power on being the correct interpreter of Christianity, Um, Napoleon was labeled the Antichrist. And as a lot of those Mm -hmm. powers, it sort of didn't matter whether he was literally Antichrist or Antichristian or not. It was the fact that he was threatening this, what I would personally call a very worldly set of powers that made Mm -hmm. him such a threat to 
um, Anna Pavlovna Scherer, as well as the, like, the reason that there was Napoleon and his empire versus a coalition, right? Like, England, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, the German states, Russia, Austria. It's like everyone was against Napoleon because they were still, they still had their power staked in this divine right of kings. Whereas Napoleon right. said, no, you, and part of, I think probably part of what the threat was, was Napoleon said, no, you and I are the same in that we obtain power when and where we can, um, mm. rather than from God. And mm-hmm. these, these remaining monarchies that had even come through the enlightenment, but they still had this like this stake in the idea of the divine right of Kings and in the idea of the Pope justifying their power. Um, right. And so forth. I, I, you know, again, it's more complicated because some of these nations were Protestant, but, but they still had this, it, it was like everyone accepted the idea of the divine right of Kings. Just not everyone agreed on who issued the divine right or, or what the sure was. Right. Right. That's, you know, that's that's yeah that's that's a good question for that era and everything but um so i want to talk about anna anna pavlovna here a little bit because um you talk about how he's such a threat to her and everything and i think there's a i I don't want to disagree with that but i think there's an irony here because she's talking about this in the context of this party and i i don't think she particularly feels any anxiety about napoleon here sure um like and besides the fact that she's speaking in french yeah um, and the invasion of french is coming and that'll come like a few years down the line anyway but i lost um, in my historical excurses what i meant to point out is that the irony is we're talking about this french antichrist in french and i think that in french that ambiguity and that contradiction is fully intentional and fully embedded in the text Right, which so that's you know in the in the um, hand holding translation, what's her name? Um, like, no, I don't want to I don't want to stick around in talking about translations here. Sure, um, Constance Garnett. Um, like, so I, I think there's a, a different effect that happens, but it it maybe accomplishes effectively the same thing that by having it in French here, you're reading about him being the Antichrist in French, especially if you're fluent in French and can do that, which I'm not fluent in French. I can get some of this out. But um, as you read it, and she's talking about this French emperor conquistador type who's coming in. um, I know I mixed my metaphors there. (laughs) Uh, Not even metaphors. Anyway, um, so talking about him as the Antichrist in French, and you're reading this all in French, that that certainly has that ironic effect. But then if you read the Constance Garnett translation, and so she's saying all of this, and then it's punctuated with, she said in French, you know, by having that there, it, it has essentially the same effect. Right. But in, you know, like you say, a more handholdy sort of way. Um just makes you but do less I, I do work want to stick reading footnotes but yeah, yeah that's true that's <laughs> true um but i, I do want to uh stick with this this soiree a little bit here because into this scene comes the character of pierre yes um and he kind of disrupts things i'm trying to find the the actual spot but he comes in and 
uh, says what's what's the big deal <laughs> about Napoleon, basically. Yeah. Uh, it disrupts the whole party. He's like the only one who has this this perspective. Um, and just the idea that this is where all of this this starts, and then as things go, where where people change and um develop and and such and i i mentioned how when pierre becomes a mason later on he 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 comes through this understanding of napoleon as the antichrist through this like mystic numerology and stuff um and all that but like i mean that's that's kind of a lesser point but just just that that fact that we've got this disruption in here and and with anna pavlovna not having that necessarily high anxiety about napoleon the men uh, at the soiree might have a little bit more um tension about it um andre i think might be one um who shows it a little bit more if i remember right um but you know it's it with the title of of war and peace that's something that like you keep coming back to this that there's there's war and there's peace and they're side by side and there are things that are going on in both ways um and there, there are periods. This spans several years, uh, and there are periods of war and periods of peace. There are scenes in war. There are scenes in peace. Here, we're in a scene of peace, but talking about war. And in this scene of peace, the anxiety over Napoleon isn't a big deal. When Napoleon starts marching on Moscow and gets closer and closer and closer, um, that's when the anxiety really starts ramping up for these characters. But here, at this point, he's more theoretical. They're able to debate him more. Um, but then Pierre comes in and, and has, it's not even really a debate until Pierre comes in, you know, right. they're kind of just agreeing. Right. And then Pierre comes and, and offers a, an alternative view, but it's downplayed because he's young and foolish. And I mean, nobody really takes him seriously. <laughs> you know, as with any scene in this novel, there's like a lot of ways I'm sure you could interpret it. Um, my interpretation is essentially that like it's along the lines of the older people get, the more conservative they tend to be, and the younger that people are, mm. the less conservative they tend to be. I don't even want to say the more liberal because like when you set up that um, binary, nah. well, you set up that binary and it's like it means different things to different people and it can have different connotations. But um, I think that Anna Pavlovna is showing a more sort of old person conservative tendency to resist change and to not only resist change, but catastrophize change. And Pierre is showing a very young person tendency to embrace change and understand change and like, be almost deified change almost deified yeah that's that's valid i think um and so i think this is like very like this is you know one of those things that like you know when you read like an extremely classic novel it's like everything you say about it kind of has the at least the threat of becoming um a a cliche or or something or at least a right um but I, i you know this to me is like part one of the many many reasons that like this novel is so universal or so um so classic is like there's this classic uh uh or this um almost universal uh 
distinction or not distinct dynamic is the word I was looking for is between yeah sure um Anna Pavlovna saying this has changed this is bad everything because of this change is bad the world is ending because she's older and she doesn't want to see her former way of life pass away whereas Pierre is younger and you know having been raised with a certain set of expectations it's very exciting while he's still young to see potentially a new world or a new way of life forming um right and like i don't know and you know we can get into this as we get into the later parts of this novel i don't know that like pierre coming to see napoleon as the antichrist is that significant of a moment no like it's a moment no. and it's you know you i i think you can read it against both the beginning and and the later parts of the novel but like i don't think that it's as significant as his belief here in the beginning or even right. as significant as some of his freemasonic beliefs and tendencies in different parts of the novel right yeah it's it, it comes right about in the center of the book where he's just like all muddled up and stuff it, it's interesting you want to know what page the whole like numerology thing happens in this translation sure 665 oh my, nice 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 <laughs> right <laughs> like, that's just fortuitous that it all happened on page 665 right. uh anyway um but yeah like it's it's about in the center of the book where he's just like in this muddled place um in general which leads to its insignificance uh to a degree anyway that he's he's not settling on anything there right um He's, he's a young person exploring and learning and developing and growing and being formed and hardened. Well, um, and that leads through it, his experiences. Yeah, and it leads to significant actions on his part, but I think that yeah. significant actions are portrayed more as like almost a form of madness than as like a settled, valid yes. conclusion. Yes, yes. Pierre definitely has. Um, madness um throughout i think that's <laughs> that's part of his character yeah um uh that he just he tends towards the insane um but in a, in a muted not dangerous not always always dangerous <laughs> way yeah i mean until he tries <laughs> to kill napoleon but even then he gets right when he tries to kill Napoleon, which which was maybe foreshadowed by his his duel earlier on too. There's um, that, yeah, that yeah. Other than those two, though, other than the two, other times than those two, he actively tries to kill someone. His madness is not that. The, dangerous. He's he's pretty harmless. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, oh man. So okay, I I, I want to say this as we're as we're winding down. I don't want to start into a new topic necessarily, but this was something sure. that occurred to me earlier when you were talking about um, like the online communities. A after I started reading it again this time, I started seeing references to War and Peace popping up all over the place, which might be a little bit of you know red car syndrome or blue car syndrome, whatever. I've heard it, it yellow car syndrome, um, but yeah, whatever way. Sure. Yeah. Whatever it is, um, but like even still, like I'm, I, I was would hear people talking about it in sermons or in lectures, and it was coming up in conversation 
that I would walk into, people would be talking about War and Peace and be like, oh, I'm reading that right uh-huh. now. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's got something in the zeitgeist anyway. Um, but we're going to have to talk more about um, Tolstoy's style and characters and some a little bit of Tolstoy himself. I don't know how much you know about the man himself, um, but I have learned a little bit in some of the extracurricular stuff yeah, that I know I've looked at. But, a little uh, bit, but not... Not very much at all. Sure. Some of it's very fascinating. Anyway, um, do you have any other thoughts before we wrap up this episode? No, I think that's all I've got as far as introductory thoughts go. All right. So this is episode one, Gentle Listener. We are planning on going through three more episodes discussing this book, but it is massive. We'll see what it does, (laughs) uh, what the book does to us. Um, So... Next time, join us again as we continue to discuss War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. Uh, and if you would like to share your comments on the book, uh, you can contact us on tapestryradio.org. Go to the Contact tab and put Scotch Talk in the subject line so we know uh, who you're talking to, what you're talking about. Um, Twitter sort of is there, right? It's X now, right? I, at Room I Scotch, really whatever. don't know. Who cares? You could probably I don't still know. find I, us I, I, and contact I us, but probably. But better to go to the website itself or on Facebook. You can uh, request to join the Tapestry Radio Tap House. Uh, if you request to join, we'll let you in unless you are the literal Antichrist. Um, we'll also do your homework for you. We don't promise to do it well, but we will do it in a way that uh, you can turn into your uh, English teachers or professors and get hauled off to plagiarism jail. Uh, go to tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast uh, and enter your homework and we'll do it for you. Um, if you like this show, you can find out, uh, listen to more of the Tapestry Radio shows like Intermission, our backstage drama podcast, Us Play Fiasco, the actual play RPG fiasco podcast. Uh, Freddy goes to a podcast where three grown men talk about the children's book series from 100 years ago. Uh, Pokemon Rollout, the actual play Pokemon Tabletop United RPG podcast. And Shakespeare in the Village, the uh, Shakespeare Outdoor Shakespeare Companion podcast. Uh, Ethan, where can they find you? Honestly, at this point, just like the tapestry stuff is best. Mm-hmm. Yep, same here. That's that's going to be best for me, too. So until next time, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if we have to read too many footnotes. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.